Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Where have I been? An avid theater goer, that's the question I asked myself after attending a performance of the revival of the award-winning musical Kiss Me Kate on Broadway. At that performance, in front of the first row of the orchestra to the left were three women who took turns interpreting the musical for members of the hearing-impaired audience. Even more surprising to me is that Hands-On, the arts service organization that advocates for access to the cultural arts for the deaf and hard-of-hearing communities in New York City, has been around for more than 30 years. My guest today is co-founder and hands-on executive director Beth Prever. She has produced more than 500 sign-interpreted productions at some of New York's most prestigious theaters. Part of her role is to ensure inclusion for all by providing marketing community engagement and audience development strategies. She's led workshops on accessibility in the arts for organizations around the country, including the Americans for the Arts and Theater Communications Group and the Kennedy Center's Leadership Exchange in Arts and Disability Conference. Oh, and speaking of the Kennedy Center, Beth is the 2015 recipient of the John F. Kennedy Center's Excellence in Accessibility Leadership Lifetime Achievement. Award. Early in her career, Beth was a freelance theatrical stage manager working on and off Broadway and in regional theater. She has a BA in theater from Brooklyn College and an MA in deafness rehabilitation from NYU. I'm excited to meet and get to know Beth Prever, so welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks for having me. How did you go from being on stage as a stage manager? to doing what you do today with hands-on. Was it a natural progression? It was a fluke progression, I think. I I was a, an usher after college. I was an usher at Brooklyn Academy of Music at BAM. And w- the house manager happened to have worked with National Theater of the Deaf many years ago. And she was setting up a company of deaf and hearing actors to tour the school system. And she was looking for a stage manager. And I was in between jobs. And I thought, oh, well, OK, it's a job. Uh-huh. So I got involved with the company. It was short-lived. It didn't last too long, but I met some deaf performers. I started to learn some sign language, and I just got captured by it. And I continued taking sign language classes. I went to Rochester to National Institute for the Deaf and took an interpreter training program, got certified as a sign language interpreter. But my, my love has always been theater. So I... I you were able to marry the two. Yeah. I, I never really wanted to be a freelance sign language interpreter. I wanted the communication. I wanted to be able to talk to deaf people, but I wanted to stay in the theater. Did you, when you were going to schools, I said you got a BA in theater from Brooklyn College. Mm-hmm. Did you think back then or want to back then be an actress? No. I I was always a stage manager. I never really wanted to be on stage. I did a couple of performances on stage. I sang Uh at a certain point, but really, I was much better backstage. I wonder if that's kind of typical of saying to yourself, I want to be a stage manager as opposed to a director or a casting agent or something like that. I really found that stage managing was something that was part of me. I was very comfortable. Organized. Organized. Mm-hmm. I liked chatting with people. I think I'm a diplomatic person, so uh, I like the diplomacy and <laughs> Important of, skill. Yes. So I think that I never wanted to direct. I wanted to be involved. Mm-hmm. And, and stage managing just kind of took with me. And I just really always enjoyed that part and never really like look to wanting to be a director. When you were growing up as a New Yorker, mm-hmm. was theater a big part of your life? Did you go to plays, musicals? My my mother took me to see Fiddler on the Roof when I was 13. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
and I think that that got me. Mm-hmm. I, I've always I've always loved theater. Um, I've always wanted to be involved in theater somehow. So, somehow, yeah, right. So you get this happenstance, you know, this uh, I guess serendipitous mm-hmm. match, and. How did that speak to you? I know that seems like a strange way to ask the question. The one thing that I I think I remember kind of making this switch for me was uh, when I was stage managing a show, kind of looking at the audiences and seeing who wasn't there and being really aware about people that couldn't get into the theater and also kind of looking at audiences that took for granted that they could get to the theater. Uh-huh. So I just remember that hitting me. I don't know if I, I kind of tied that to suddenly I wanted to you know set up an organization like Hands On, but I, I do remember looking at audiences going, hmm, who wasn't in the pick there? And then when I started taking the sign language classes, that was like in the late 70s, early 80s. And at that point, Interpreted theater was just beginning on huh. Broadway, and TDF, Theater Development, Development Fund, Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, was starting to do interpreted theater on Broadway. I mean, my background, I think, was when I was stage managing, was doing small nonprofit off-Broadway theater, and that's what I loved. I really liked the intimacy the small, of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. small environment, the off-Broadway. I, lo- I loved the nonprofit mentality. Mm-hmm. And so when I started looking and seeing that, you know, it was Broadway that was happening. Nothing was happening off Broadway. I I met a couple of people. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they were sign language interpreters. Um, one was a deaf actress, and we just started talking. We actually ended up talking for about a year just on this idea and concept of how we could, you know, open up inclusion. Because up for, until that point, that didn't happen. That right. didn't exist. Right on any level. Broadway, off-Broadway, regional? Well, Broadway was just starting. I think in the, like 1980 was the first Broadway interpreted performance. Do you remember what that, that was? It was Elephant Man. So, oh, so that's Elephant a really Man. interesting match. Yeah, so that uh-huh. was the first show that was being that was interpreted, and that was TDF was doing it. But what we were seeing was that nobody really, was really looking at off-Broadway mm. environment, mm-hmm. so we started looking at that as being... A niche to start. Use that as your jumping off point. Right. That nobody was doing off Broadway, and so we thought, well, let's kind of look at off Broadway. Well, we all liked off Broadway, and but I said it as I said my introduction that you got a Bachelor of Arts Mm -hmm. in theater, Mm -hmm. and then how much, how long after that did you get your MA? I think my it was like early '80s that I started getting more involved. I think in the deaf community and deafness. And so that was all kind language. of come together for you. Coming yeah, together for you. Yeah, and um, I mean, we officially, I think, hands on was officially started in like 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was kind of late '70s, early '80s that we started looking at this kind of conflu- confluence right, right. Or, uh-huh. or theater uh-huh. and sign language and seeing how we could do something with that. How well were you received by the theatrical community? Were you dismissed? Absolutely not. And what was really interesting, we started working early on with Art New York, so the Alliance of Resident Theaters New York, which is a membership theater, and they're still around now. And what what they had was, they had a newspaper called Theater Times at, at the time, and they would write articles. And we met with Art New York, and they had a consultancy program where they would, you know, send a consultant in varying, you know, disciplines to a theater. Art New York would pay for half the consultancy and the theater would pay for the other half of the consultancy. So after this kind of year's discussion amongst the four of us, you know, in terms of hands-on, we talked with Art New York and they sent us out on our first 
consultancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, at the time, I, I believe it was Manhattan Theater Club was the first theater that kind of signed on for the consultancy. And what we had developed over the year of our discussion was this huge timeline of everything that we thought was necessary to make a good interpreted performance. And we had it break. We had it broken down in terms of marketing, in terms of what the interpreters needed, in terms of what the production should be doing, in terms of lighting. You know, everything. And we really thought we could take this huge timeline and give it to a theater and say, "Hi, we've developed this timeline. Here it is. Go do it." And I think the first theater that we met with to discuss the timeline said to me. This is really overwhelming. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, we right. would much rather we'd raise the money and you do it because we have no idea really what you're talking about, but we want to do it. So I, we never really found a lot of hesitancy from the theater community. At that time, I think I was always ready to go in. There, there were federal laws that at the time that we started, this was before the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was 1990. Mm-hmm. In 1973, there was Section 504 of the Rehab Act. So this was this was a federal law that basically said any entity that gets government funding, federal funding, has to be accessible to people with disability. Mm-hmm. So I think going in, I was all ready and geared up to say, okay, we're going in. We want your theater to be accessible to deaf people, and there's a law. And I met with so little resistance to say, you know, people coming back to me to say, it's, we're not doing this for the law. We're doing this because we want to be inclusive, because we want to invite these communities to our theaters. So it was interesting just because I came in with a, you know, the law on my side and you know, the theaters were coming in. You didn't saying, have to convince anybody. I didn't anybody. have to convince. But how was Hands-On born? I think because theater interpreting was just starting and there were, there were big you know, audiences that were going out to these Broadway houses. And I live in New York City. I love, you know, the nonprofit off-Broadway arena. And nobody was, like, looking at that. So we just thought, oh, well, it's an untapped market. market, And let's look at that. And mm-hmm. let, let's, you know. And who is the we? Actually, four women. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was myself, uh, Candace Brecker-Penn, who is a sign language interpreter who you saw at Kiss Me Kate. Yes. She was one of the interpreters there. Janet Harris, who at the time was a sign language interpreter. She's now moved to San Francisco. And Janice Cole, who was a deaf actress. And the four of us were had just met, you know, met each other. We weren't really good friends. I knew Candy and Janet knew Janice. Mm-hmm. You know, there were four of us. And we just started talking. We just started meeting and talking. A little serendipity? And, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I think we were all on the same path. We all had the same goals. What about the other two women? How did that? They were interpreters, so they just, were. Uh, they, they, so were they were sign language. So they were sort of ahead of you in that sense. Yes, they had been doing that. Right, and I was a stage manager, so we also kind of looked at it that I don't really. We didn't see a lot of like conflicts amongst the four of us. <laughs> right, uh-huh. competition. Right, you we each all had wanted your to own, do. Yeah, right. We all wanted to do different things. Uh-huh. So I was kind of the administrative end of it. You know, Candy and Janet were the sign language interpreters, and Janice was an actress who was deaf, who knew sign language, and just the four of us just came together and talked. And at that point, you all were earning a living because you were not getting any money from hands-on as a nonprofit, right? You had right. to apply for grants and such? Or? Right. We we still are very small and don't get to have a lot of money. So I think, mm. I think that, you know, Candy and Janet were, you know, sign language interpreters. Janice was making her money... 
as an actress or right. I was probably working as a secretary someplace uh-huh. while I was... At that point, I think I wasn't doing that much stage managing anymore, mm-hmm. but I was still wanting to be in the theater. So you were the first of your kind as hands-on. Yes. So we developed it, and I think that the points that I think we wanted to make with everybody was that, you know, having having an interpreter is not an interpretive performance. So just kind of putting two people up in front interpreting a play doesn't make for a cohesive interpretive performance, that there's lots of other elements involved, and that's why we were trying to explain that there's marketing involved, there's the production involved about what their role is, so that everybody has a role. You know, the theater itself has a role in this, that we didn't want to say just having interpreters up in the front of the theater, whether there was an audience or not, you have to get an audience, and you have to be part of the community, and the community has to know that you exist. Sure. Why would somebody who's hearing hearing impaired think that they were going to go to the theater? Right, you know? right. So we really kind of looked at it kind of holistically and, and mm-hmm. looked at every aspect of what we thought was involved. And like I said, that's how we developed this timeline of every component that mm-hmm. and, and why it was looked at as being complicated and overwhelming. And it's like, but this is what... We've looked at and and you know discovered that this is what's involved in making a successful interpretive performance. And you weren't discouraged, obviously. No. I no. mean, I'm sure there were definitely big bumps in the road. There were, but we weren't discouraged because we really worked hard to be part of the community and make sure that we got you weren't good coming interpreters. in with like gangbusters, right? I mean, we made sure that you know there were there were shows that were of interest to the community, that we made sure that the dates we checked out, that they weren't in conflict with other parts of the community. We made sure that there was an audience. You know, we did a lot of marketing and getting the word out to the audiences because the theaters were paying. So we wanted to make sure that whatever we were doing was a successful event. So they were paying your organization. Yes. As I said, I go to the theater a lot. Mm -hmm. And just in general, maybe it's changed, not maybe, it has changed recently, But what always struck me was the lack of diversity in the audience. Certainly one of the factors I think is cost. And I would have to think that maybe way down on that list might be hearing impaired audience members. Well, I think access in general was was not, you know, it's... It certainly progressed over the years in terms of, you know, what I see as theaters being interested in opening up their audiences to deaf and disabled audiences. I definitely hope to look at diversity as including deaf and disability of as course. part of diversity. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, sometimes it's a little further down the line yes, than yes. I'd like it to be. But I think we're seeing now, you know, after 30 plus years of doing this, a much stronger interest and a much stronger understanding of disability as part of the diversity Has it turned that instead of you going out, theater groups and theatrical personnel is coming to you? It's funny that you say that only because right now we are seeing such a surge in requests in terms of theaters that are interested in doing interpretive theater. And I'm not even quite sure Why? why that's happening right now. 
But yeah, I mean, theaters that we've never worked with are suddenly contacting me, and you know, we're a we're a small organization, mm-hmm. so it's you know, and you have to parse it out somehow. You have to parse it out. It's also still a you know a growing community in terms of audiences that you don't want to overwhelm the audience and say we're going to do a show a day or we're going to show do a show that you have to be concerned about you know, how you schedule different shows. We're in the process of training new interpreters. That's another kind of need that we have. How many do you have now? Well, we don't have any. I mean, there's no, everybody's a freelancer. So there's no, we don't, we don't hire, you know, every, every interpreter basically works for a free, a fee for service. So there's nobody like, we don't have a staff. So in other words, the theater management is contacting me directly? I am. You so, are. So, oh, right. Okay, so, so you're a theater the middle says, man. Right, so a theater says, so Roundabout Theater wants, yes. wants to do Kiss, Kiss Me Kate. Kate. We start contacting interpreters who might be interested or might be like a good match for the show, might have you know availability in their schedule, mm-hmm. and we book people that way. So as of this point, how many freelance interpreters do you have? I would say there's probably like maybe 15 or 20. Wow. So it's not a lot. No. And, you know, and with this suddenly kind of surge from the theater community, you know, and, and your point about diversity, you know, we're dealing with the same kind of issues in terms of diversity of interpreters, in terms of inter- interpreters of color, hmm. um, you know, male interpreters versus female interpreters. Um, but the, you know, the issue of diversity and, and interpreters of color is definitely coming up for us yeah. a lot now because we're seeing a lot of theater that's where the cast is definitely yeah. people of color. That's right. And actually with Art New York, we did a big training uh, in last January of for, we had about 25 interpreters that signed up for it. So it's a start for them. But that was our goal is to really increase the pool. So we're we're looking at a lot of different methods that we can, you know, mentor new interpreters in, mm. you know, how we can start bringing interpreters in because doing a, you know, a two and a half day workshop is not going to, is, is not going to end, end up with having finished interpreters. So it's a process. So like I said, we're doing mentoring programs. We're trying to bring, bring people in. We're thinking about other off, you know, programs that we can offer interpreters to have them, you know, increase their skills. You know, I was also struck because this is a musical. And I thought to myself, how do, how do you do that? I, I want you to tell me how you do I mean do from that. an audience perspective or from an interpreter perspective? I th- if, I've actually both. Both? Well, from an interpreter perspective, I probably can't give you, you know, if, you know, that's that's much more like the role of the three interpreters. I, you know, I, I mean, would, it's individual. Right. I mean, so what I, about you? I mean, I... I, I'm like, quote, a certified interpreter. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call my, I mean, I can certainly have conversations with deaf people. In but terms you wouldn't of, be, I wouldn't would be, be up there. there. No. Okay. One is I wouldn't want to. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm really qualified to do it. Mm-hmm. I know my place. I know my <laughs> skill level. <laughs> right. The uh-huh. three interpreters that you saw are wonderful interpreters. And, yes. And so what they do, I can't do. There's no competition. I don't want to do what they do, and I can't. And you do what you do well, so that's right. fine. Right. It overwhelmed me in a positive way, is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. And that was why I said, I have to find out more about this because it was fascinating to me and I don't not, I'm not saying it's uh-huh. ho hum to you but I just oh it's not and it's not ho hum I mean I look at what they do and go it's it's amazing the the skill that they bring to a show when we first started I remember audiences would come to us and say I really enjoyed the interpreters who would and say that the audience I would guess yeah everybody. so a deaf I mean, audience would come and say oh you know after a show they would just their their comments would be about 
the interpreters. Mm -hmm. But now what we're getting is people coming saying, I like the play. And that to me is the skill level these interpreters are providing an experience of the play. So we don't get the comments of, yes, I mean, they're wonderful interpreters and people will comment that, oh, the interpretation was great, but it's the play that I want people to like or not like. Right. I that want they're people uh, to be able to say, I thought it was great interpreters, I hated the play. You know, it's it's an experience. I want people to experience theater, good, bad, or however you experience theater, in a way that they want to come back to, that they become theater goers. Is it patronizing of me to say that I was surprised that this was a musical? I think musicals go very well for the deaf community. There's so much visual that's going on. So it doesn't matter in a sense? It, it's almost like more... You know, even though we've had incredible success with, you know, straight plays, mm -hmm. um, I mean, a musical, there's dancing, there's visuals, there's things to watch. Right, of course. There's breaks mm -hmm. from watching the interpreter mm -hmm. where you can just watch the dancing that's going on. You know, and definitely, I think over the years, we've been doing this so long that we've definitely seen, you know, deaf people come back to us and, you know, have different tastes in theaters. People like musicals, people like straight plays, people like dramas, people like comedies. So people are definitely... They've developed, you know, their theater tastes over the years. What is the diversity among the hearing impaired audience? There's there's definitely been a lot of, you know, deaf performers. Somebody said York. that there was um, a deaf, I, I'm not sure if it was an actor or actress in uh, King, King Lear yes. with Glenda Jackson. Yeah. So and I there was an interpreter on stage too, yes. right? Yep. So I think over the years we've seen a lot, a lot more diversity on stage. I mean, there was Spring Awakening that Deaf West did, that mm -hmm. was an all-deaf cast for the most part. Oh, so that's a true? That, that... Deaf West is a theater in California, oh, in L.A., and okay. they did a production of Spring Awakenings that got picked up and taken to Broadway. Um, there was Children of a Lesser God that had you know deaf, deaf actors mm -hmm. involved in it. King Lear mm -hmm. is there. I mean, there's definitely, there's been movies with you know deaf actors. You're definitely seeing deaf performers on stage. Much more so. Much more so. And I so I think that, you know, our audiences are a combination of, you know, young deaf actors or young deaf people that just have seen deaf performers on stage, um, you know, and older deaf people. I mean, I think it's a it's probably a mix like every anybody else. Right. That we see. So how does somebody get a hold of you? So certain theaters have that we we've, we've been working with for a long time. So Roundabout Theater, this is I think our twenty first or twenty second year. So Roundabout, yeah, you guys go we, way back. We well actually we go further back for Shakespeare in the Park. I mean we've been doing Shakespeare in the Park I think for thirty six years. That, isn't that great? So we do every every show in the summer. So we've been doing that, and you know the you know especially Shakespeare in the Park has become a big deaf community event. Mm -hmm. I mean, we get a big chunk of tickets. We get 200 tickets. Um, it's incredibly popular. We, That's great. We get deaf people kind of coming in from out of town <laughs> for it. People have heard about it. We work with four interpreters. We're in this kind of center of the section, you know, of the theater doing it. So people have either seen us at Shakespeare in the Park mm -hmm. or Roundabout with Roundabout, um, Roundabout was the first theater that started. Want, they wanted a subscription. They're they're they do subscriptions yes. themselves. Yes. They're a heavily subscription house. And when we first started working with Roundabout twenty one years ago, the theater want was very much wanting you know a deaf series subscription series. And we had never done that before. And I didn't know if deaf people would sign up for you know four shows and 
you know, over the over the course of a year. But that's how they function, and they want loyalty of their audiences, and it worked. So the partnership has been very successful. Yeah, it's very successful, and it's increased over the years. The thing that's lovely about Roundabout is, so I'll give you my John Lithgow story. So, <laughs> so John Lithgow did his one man show, I think, two years ago, and he was. Lovely. I mean, we had one interpreter for his one-man show. Um, he came out and actually, at the beginning of the show, introduced the interpreter to the audience. Not common, huh? Not common at all. I mean, you know, a- actors are, for the most part, lovely generous. and mm-hmm. generous. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, John Lithgow's generosity kind of went above and beyond mm-hmm. what I had ever seen. And, mm-hmm. you know, introduced the interpreter by name, introduced him to the entire audience. But what he did was he introduced the deaf audience as... The roundabout audience, like he didn't, he didn't kind of point them out as being like, oh, this is a special show and it's interpreted. He said, and these are roundabout subscribers, and that's who they were. Mm. And so they, and they are, they're roundabout subscribers. And what's been lovely over the years with Roundabout is, because it is a subscription, the hearing audience who sees us has seen us for twenty years. Yes, it's and sort of ho hum so to them. It's very yeah. ho hum. So mm-hmm. you know, I sit generally in the lobby giving out the tickets mm-hmm. before the show, and I've seen hearing audience members kind of come in, look over at me. You know, we have a little hands-on sign, mm-hmm. and just go, "Oh, it's a hands-on show," and just walk on. Is there diversity among the interpreters? For example, if I knew sign mm-hmm. and I signed up with you, do I need to have an acting background? I think it takes a special skill to do. I, I mean, would I think, think that there's a lot of, and I think that there's a lot of really wonderful interpreters that have no desire to do theater interpreting. So I think that it's a special, enhanced skill. I would beyond, think so. I think that that could be very overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. So I think that it's not for everybody. That's why I think when I say you know there's 15 or 20, there's a lot more interpreters. It's not so much actors that are also interpreting. It's interpreters that do interpretive theater who, when they're not doing interpretive theater, they're interpreting classrooms, they're interpreting college, uh, they're interpreting mm-hmm. in hospitals, mm-hmm. they're interpreting, you know, in medical situations. So, As I said in the introduction, that you've led workshops on accessibility and the arts for organizations around the country. Talk about that. Okay, so I have my own disability. So mm-hmm. I, have, I have MS. I was diagnosed about 20 something years ago. Wow. I've definitely been welcomed into the deaf community and but I'm very aware of I'm a hearing person mm. working with the deaf community. So I'm very aware of not my limits but where I fit in the community. And having a you know a disability diagnosis of my own kind of brought to me that it's my identity and so I started 20 something years ago looking at accessibility beyond just looking at, you know, deaf accessibility sure. with sign language interpreters, but just looking for accessibility because now it was mine. Yeah. So well, I, it's very personal I, then. Yeah. So it was very personal to me. It was very interesting to me. It was definitely my identity issues that I was going through. So I think that over the years, you know, I think my focus definitely is on sign language interpreting, and I think that's, you know, my my top skill. But I think that theater access in general for all people with disabilities has become a little bit more of a cause. A lot more of a cause and important to me and, and something that really is mine. And how have you seen it progress? I think that, especially working in New York City, where, you know, the issues of access have pluses and minuses mm, sometimes. Mm. I definitely have, you know, found a, you know, a disability community in New York who is working to increase 
access in the city. So I definitely have seen access in general. I'm now working with Art New York as a consultant for them on access issues with the off-Broadway nonprofit environment. So I think access in general is being looked at more right mm-hmm. now. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing the surge of, of interest. Where is it not so ubiquitous? I, I'm not quite sure how to the answer that. I mean, I think that there's pluses and minuses. There's still places where you can't go to the bathroom because <laughs> the bathroom's down a flight of steps mm-hmm. or up a flight of steps. Um, and I, so I think those are the kind of things where you can do the best you can about with what you've got, with what you've got and what you find out. My push always has been like information. I want to know what's in front of me. I mean, I want to know when where places that I can't go to. I right. want to know what the situation is, and I want to be part of the conversation. I don't necessarily expect, which is unfortunate, that every place ultimately is going to be accessible to me. So I, I recognize that there are limits to what you've been done, but I just want to, I want to know in advance. I just want to be part of the conversation. I want to be thought of as in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think, you know, accessibility can really surge if if people just think that there might be a disabled person coming to their meeting or coming to their event, they start thinking about things in a little, little different way. Despite the thirty plus years, the caption is, "You still have your work cut out for you." I think we all do. I but I but I think that I'm seeing this kind of, you know, coming together, of you know people with disabilities. The city there was joining a, forces, joining forces, and I think looking at disability and accessibility right. in a way that I think it's bringing it to the forefront. Yeah, it has to be part of the conversation, Conversation, for sure. What was that like to be the recipient of the John F. Kennedy Center's Excellence in Accessibility Leadership Lifetime Achievement Award? (laughs) Now, you may be a little self-deprecating about that, but that's a big deal. It is a big deal. And I've been going to the LEAD conference. The LEAD conference is, I'll give a little plug for them. I mean, I think the conference has been going on for 20-something years, um, and it really is the only conference on accessibility in the arts that I know of, like in the country, and it's a yearly it's a yearly conference. At this point in my life and my career, I try to go to other conferences that really don't have anything to do with disability mm-hmm. to make a point that disability and accessibility should be part of everybody's conversation, not just people that are specifically For doing sure. that work. And I go and I have a, a little mobility scooter that I leave in my car, and I bring those to these conferences because I want to be seen. I For think sure. it's important. But at the LEAD conference... That's where you kind of can go and, you know, put your guard down and every everybody is there for the same purpose. So it's a very comfortable conference and I know a lot of the people and it's grown over the years and it's it's wonderful. You know, the hardest thing for me is listening to somebody talk about things that I've done and it, it's I'm a backstage person. I understand so that. I, and you know, I, 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 it's, it's not false modesty so, on your part. Yeah. I don't know you all that well, but I understand. Yeah. That. So it's, it's so it's yeah. hard, but it was a it was a great honor and mm-hmm. I was well I was deserved. Very touched and it was it was it was a great evening. So we're running out of time. Tell me, what more work do you want to accomplish, or what well, do you want to accomplish? I worked for twenty years for the Department of Education for New York City Department of Education, and I was the director of interpreting services at the DOE. We had set up, it's the Office of Sign Language Interpreting Services. Uh That didn't exist before you? It really didn't. There were a couple of interpreters that were working under a deaf administrator who ultimately became a principal of a school, but I was really the first director of the office and really set up the office. And we went from, I think when I started there, there were 
there were nine interpreters that were on staff, and now there's 23 throughout the entire New York City public school that, system. So they're all they're all in this under this one department. They're employees of the Department of Education, mm-hmm. and they they provide interpreting services for deaf parents, for deaf staff, throughout the entire Department of Education. So you shepherded that. Yeah, yeah. So I shepherded it. I worked there. I did my 20 years. <laughs> And I before you got a reprieve from the governor, I I you know I got my pension, mm-hmm. and, which is which is wonderful, and mm-hmm. I just felt like there's things that I want to do, and while I still feel I have the energy for sure and time to do it, I want to do it, and so now I'm devoting like all my time to, you know, a combination of hands-on about these consulting work that I want to do in terms of access. So it's it's an exciting time for me. I'm incredibly busy, which is which is wonderful and really interesting to me. But I really want to see where you know accessibility can go to and mm. really kind of spread the word on that. And you know, I've created a whole you know a lot of contacts over the years, and I know a lot of people, and I really am incredibly interested in connecting people with each other. Um, I think, you know, especially I'm a New Yorker and especially in a city like New York, which is so big and vast, there's so many different people and organizations who are doing really good work who don't know about the other about one. The other one. Yeah. And I, I think that working with organizations like Art New York can connect people to each other. We're doing a lot of cohort Work. We're gathering a group of theaters that might be geographically connected or, you know, have some connections to each other to let them know about other, you know, areas of accessibility that are going on that they can tap into. It's, mm-hmm. You know, why, why recreate the wheel? Yeah, Somebody right. is already doing it. So I think this whole idea of collaboration and just linking people in the city is something that I'm really excited about. Well, considering all who you know, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Well, thank goodness for the <laughs> Beth Prebbers of the world who do what they want to do. We're only better for that. I made this very personal because I didn't know about hands-on. And I said, We're, I'm going to follow through with this. And I'm so glad that you came to share this I with me. I appreciate it. It was mm-hmm. a fun talk. Thank you so much. Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.